this is Christian Kuhn of Urban Village Church in Chicago. Welcome back to my sermon podcast. It is great to be back with you again, and we are starting a brand new sermon series here at Urban Village, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these thoughts with you as we explore what it means to be Methodist. Uh, So before I get into that, though, I want to read the passage, a scripture passage that I'll be focusing on today. This comes from the New Testament near the back of the Bible, and it's from a uh, book called Second Peter. This is Second Peter 3, verses 13 through 18. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be and live in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and dissolved? and the elements will, be, will melt with fire. But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth, where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace, without spot or blemish, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you are forewarned, beware that you are not carried away with the error of the lawless and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. May God's blessing be on the hearing and living out of this word. I was listening to um, This American Life podcast a few weeks ago, and the theme of the podcast was called Kid Logic, things that we uh, either hear as kids that we take to be common knowledge, uh, or ways that kids hear things and explain the way the world is. So, for example, there was a segment of the show where people were talking about uh, things that they heard and believed as children, and it just never shifted as they grew older. So, example, one woman was talking about how she believed in unicorns up until adulthood, until she had an embarrassing moment uh, at a party where she asked whether unicorns were extinct or just endangered. Another example of this is when a woman was talking about uh, when she was a kid, and she saw school crossing signs, and there's a picture of kids walking, and it would say, school X-I-N-G. I'm sure we're all familiar with those words, but she thought that the word X-I-N-G was an actual word, as in zing, pronouncing it that way. And then she goes on in the podcast, and now I'm quoting her. She says, I was in my 20s, and I was walking into work, and about 10 geese walked in front of me on the sidewalk. And so I just turned to my coworker and casually said, it looks like they should have a zing sign there for the geese. There was a long, awkward silence. And I thought he was thinking, you know, that really is a good idea. But instead, he finally said, you know, zing isn't a word. I don't know if any of you have experiences like that. Uh, Words, perhaps, that we have heard and we think mean one thing. Or, my hunch is this has probably happened to you too, sometimes people will throw out words and we nod our heads like, yeah, I know what that means, where uh, if we were pressed on what it actually means... Uh, perhaps more than a few of us would be hard-pressed to actually come up with a definition. So 
There are all kinds of words like this in the church. The church loves making up fancy words, so things like a doxology or sacristy or benediction or narthex, things that have to do maybe with a worship service or a part of a church building. And sometimes if you are pressed to say, what exactly does that mean? I'm sure there are lots of church folks who would have no idea. And especially if you're new to church, those words mean absolutely nothing to you. The same is true with denominations. You may have heard certain uh, denominations like Presbyterian or Episcopalian or Lutheran. Or then sometimes people will put uh, words in front of a denomination. So, for example, Baptist seems like it's a little bit more straightforward, but then there are, of course, lots of different variations of Baptist, like Southern Baptist or Cooperative Baptist or American Baptist. It gets all very confusing. And so that brings us to our church, Urban Village, And we talk about being a United Methodist Church. So Methodist, again, all of these denominations aren't satisfied with just one syllable. They've got to put in numerous syllables. And for us, we add that United in front of it. So it begs the question, what exactly does it mean to be United Methodist? What sort of things do we believe? Are there some sort of secret handshakes that we have? So this is what we want to explore over the next few weeks. Our official church name is not Urban Village United Methodist Church, and so sometimes people are confused by what it means to be United Methodist, and so we certainly do not want to hide anything from anyone. So we want to do our best over these next few weeks to begin to explore a little bit. We can't get into it um, in too much detail, but at least explain a little bit about what it means to be United Methodist and how it relates to us as being Urban Village Church. Now today, as we talk about that, I want to bring up another word. This one's only one syllable, but we throw it around a lot in the church. And this is, I think, a helpful way for us to begin to enter into this conversation about what it means to be United Methodist. So that word is grace. Grace. We sing amazing grace. We talk about grace. But if we are asked about what it actually means, we might struggle a little bit. In fact, as I was In my first year in seminary, I wrote a paper in my Old Testament class, and I was using the word grace, and on the margins, the professor wrote, I don't remember exactly what he said, but essentially it was, you need a a crash course on what grace means. And here I was in seminary, and I was struggling to apparently come up with what grace actually is. So what is it? Well, there's one theologian, Wesleyan theologian, and I'll talk about Wesleyan, what Wesleyan means in a minute, who says that grace is God's love that seeks to restore us when we cannot restore ourselves and when we do not deserve to be restored. Grace, for me, one way of describing it is gift. Gift of love, gift of forgiveness, gift when we don't deserve these things. We've not done anything necessarily to Uh, receive grace. So what does that have to do with Methodism? Well, it starts with, I mentioned earlier, a Wesleyan scholar. It starts with this, really this family in Northern England, a family, large family. Uh, Two of the sons named John and Charles Wesley. They were two of 19 children, both born in early 18th century. They were two of the nine of that 19 that grew to an older age. They grew up in the church uh, called the Anglican Church or the Church of England. They both went to Oxford University, uh, grew up in the faith. Uh, and while they were at Oxford, they felt led to gather with a group of other people to really practice their faith. 
And they were pretty intense about it. In fact, they're so methodical about the different ways that they're living out their faith. Some people saw them and uh, in a way to cast aspersions on them, to derisively uh, put them down, they called them Methodists because they were so methodical about how they were doing this. And that's kind of how the name stuck. So John Wesley struggled a little bit in his early life. He was a devoted person of faith. He knew all of these things in his head, but there was something that was always kind of nagging at him. He didn't feel it. He didn't really know it at his core. When he was a young man, he went on a mission trip to the colony of Georgia here in the United States. And while he was there, he struggled about what it was in his faith uh, that he would believed. He said, uh, this is a quote from one of his journals. He said, I went to America to convert the Indians, uh, early mission trips, but oh, who shall convert me? Who or what is he that will deliver me from this evil heart of mischief? I have a fair summer religion. He seemingly was going to convert others, but he knew that he himself needed to be converted. Later on in his life, he had experience of others who did feel and sense what it meant to have that kind of passionate faith. And he had a conversion experience too, very famously in Methodism. We talk about Wesley when he described that his heart was strangely warmed and then he knew that God's love and forgiveness was for him. And that started a process of passion and drive that was really a time of renewal in the Church of England. And this then turned into its own denomination of Methodism that came over to the colonies, the American colonies, in this new country called the United States of America. The center for it all, for Wesley, is and was grace. Grace was the center of who Wesley was. And for him, was very grounded in Scripture. Perhaps one of the passages that was central for him comes from the book of Ephesians, that says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So again, this notion of grace as gift, nothing that we have done to earn anything. Instead, this is given to us by God. So for Wesley, grace was such a big part of who he was that it He actually broke it down in three different ways, and that's how we describe grace as United Methodists. The first way that Wesley talked about grace is what we call prevenient grace. Uh, And this is uh, Wesley's understanding that God's grace was an active presence in our lives, and that it's God's taking the initiative in relating to us. God is actively seeking us out, wanting to be in relationship with us. God's grace is is there before we even know it or comprehend it. So, for example, uh, a few weeks ago, I was on the platform of the L, and I noticed out of the corner of my eye that there was a person with about a dozen different roses, and this person was wanting, he's going up to different people, and he was wanting to hand them this rose. And at first, sometimes you wonder, what is the catch like, is there going to be an ask necessarily for, for this? He was just giving these roses away, and he was somewhat insistent on it. He really desperately wanted to give people these roses. No one asked for it. This person was just doing it. He wanted to share something beautiful with 
others. This is a little bit like what God desires for us, this gift of love, of forgiveness, of relationship. Sometimes in the church, we call this salvation. This is God's desire to give this to us. There's nothing that we earn, nothing that we have done to bring it about. This is just God's own doing. This is what prevenient grace means for, for Wesley. So then, when we become aware of this gift, if this sparks something within us, then the question is, what do we do about it? What is our response? Now, there are lots of possibilities. There is rejection or denial. So, for example, when this person was handing out roses, the person came up to me and I was so suspicious, so suspicious of what this person's ulterior motive was. I said, no. I said, no, thanks. And so he looked a little crestfallen, but he kept on wanting to give it to others. And since then, I really kind of regretted this because I realized now that the person wasn't asking for money. He just wanted to share this gift. And I said, uh, no, thanks. So if we become familiar with this gift from God, saying no is certainly an option. But if we are so overwhelmed by this, then we can also receive and say yes and respond with gratitude. And when we say yes to this, this is another, this is the second kind of grace that Wesley talks about. This is justifying grace. So if you ever, for example, read a column in a book or a newspaper, and it's evenly aligned on both the left and the right. That's called being justified. Everything is even on the right and the left. This is what it means to be justified in life, that we, are, we receive this gift of grace, of love, and we say yes to it. And then, I think sometimes what often happens, we then begin to take inventory of our lives. God is love has been so amazing, and we say yes to this. And then we look at our own lives, and we hopefully ask ourselves the question, how have I responded in my own life to this gift that has been given to me? Something beyond myself has loved me. Have I always responded with love? And if we're honest with ourselves, when we do this inventory, we have to say, no, I haven't always loved. And so then we think about how can my life be transformed? We receive and say yes to receiving this gift. And we say, Lord, I have not always done what you've called me to do. And we ask for forgiveness, for second chances, and God says yes to that, and we are made right. We are justified. That's what justifying grace. So then what happens after that? I think sometimes in churches, there is a tradition of uh, emphasis on this, what Wesley calls justifying grace. So for example, you may have seen this and you may have experienced in your own life, or you may have seen this in a movie or TV show, kind of an altar call of sorts of people saying yes to this call from God and people coming up front. It's very dramatic and much applause. Souls are being saved. And so I think for some folks, maybe many folks in the Christian faith, they think I have made this decision. I am good to go. I need to do nothing else. And for Wesley, that was just the wrong answer. Instead, he said that there is something more, that God's grace doesn't stop there. It continues with us. It stays with us. And he called this sanctifying grace, grace that continues to work on our lives and inspire us to continue to love with all of who we are. And this is where I want to bring in this passage 
uh, from 2 Peter today. I need to give you a little bit of context here, what's happening. This was written near the end of the first century. And those folks who were gathered together in this community, believing that Christ was the Messiah, believed fervently that Christ would come again and restore the world. And when this did not happen in ways that they thought it would, there were others who scorned that belief, saying, this is not what you thought it was. And so therefore, everything that you believe uh, will just fall apart. And so the author here in this letter is trying to encourage them and telling them to first be patient, that Christ will come again. But he's also saying, just because you are waiting around doesn't mean that you shouldn't continue to live lives that are full of love and holiness. At the very end, the passage says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Continue to grow in this way. If you notice earlier in the passage, it says strive to be found by him at peace without spot or blemish. So the author is saying here in this passage that God's love and grace is still working on you and we still need to to live our lives in such a way that it is infused with love. And this is exactly what Wesley was getting at. This is what sanctifying grace is all about. When we make a decision to invite Christ into our lives, that is not the end of the story. Instead, it is just the beginning. And our lives, hopefully, continue to be transformed so that we are fully loving God and neighbor with all of who we are, with all of who we are. Grace is not a one-time transaction. It is so much more than that. When I was uh, in my early 20s, and as one uh, goes through that period in your early 20s, when, of course, you're trying to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life, and I had a sense that I wanted to uh, do something with my faith. I was called to something, and at the time, I thought it was religious communication. So I went to a seminary. Uh, to explore this call. And while I was there, I met a, a, a man who'd become really influential, pretty influential in my life, a man named Tim. He worked for the seminary. And we built a, a really great relationship with one another. And we stayed in touch for the next few years. And the thing about Tim that he kept saying to me was, uh, as I was exploring what exactly my call would be, and initially I would say, I don't think that going into the ministry, the ordained ministry is my path. I there's a lot about it that I'm suspicious of, that I just don't, I don't want to give up my Sundays, you know, whatever reasons I had, that was it. And Tim would keep saying to me, you know, Chris, you could be my pastor. And whenever he would say that, I would just cringe a little bit inside. I'm like, ah, I don't want to hear that. But that was a phrase that he kept saying to me. And he wouldn't let me go with it. Chris, you could be my pastor. And it's interesting, that exact phrase, it happened more than once, not just with Tim, but with others too. They would use that exact phrase. And that would be one of those Holy Spirit moments where I think, I think this is something beyond just Tim. It's beyond me. It's bigger than all of that. And this is one way I think that I can describe what sanctifying grace is, that God working in ways to keep nudging us lovingly poking us to say, what are you going to do with this life that you have been given? What are you going to do with this gift of second chances of love when you don't deserve it? 
What are you going to do with it? This is sanctifying grace so that we will continue to say yes every single day. So we say, Lord, I am in your hands. May your grace continue to work on me in this way, even on moments, in moments where I totally mess it up. That's the goal for Wesley. That's the goal of Christian living. And that's the basis, I think, one of the unique things about what it means to be a Methodist, that we believe that God's grace continues to work on us and we can fully love God with with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm going to end all of my sermons throughout this month in this series by saying a prayer uh, that was written by John Wesley. It's called Wesley's Covenant Prayer. And I think it's a really good prayer for us to say each way, each day as a way to invite God's sanctifying grace to work in our own lives. I'm going to read, there's two, I'm going to hand out these little plastic cards to folks, this prayer uh, at our church. And I'm going to read this to you now. And there's uh, the original version and there's the more contemporary version. I'm going to read the one in, with more contemporary language. But I want you to imagine saying this prayer, and you can Google, or I'll put a link on the Podbean page, my sermon Podbean page, uh, about where you can go and find this prayer. But I want to read this to you. Uh, what would it look like for us to say this prayer throughout the month of July, each day? Here it is. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it also be made in heaven. Amen. This prayer is opening oneself up to God's grace, saying, whatever circumstance I find find myself in, in, in moments where I will be criticized and suffering, Help me to be a presence for you. In moments when things are going great, help me to continue to be a witness for you. No matter what the circumstance that we find ourselves in, Lord, may your grace, may your grace continue to work on me so that I can be your presence, your witness to this world. May this prayer, may this grace be the central component of who we are as Christians following in the Methodist tradition. The world could use a little more of this kind of Methodism. Amen. Well, friends, thank you for listening to this podcast. I will be back again next week as we continue to explore this Methodist tradition. If you have any questions for me or want to reach out, you can do so. Email is Chris at urbanvillagechurch.org. You can go to my website, christiancoon.com, and learn about my book there and my other podcast. Finally, after a few weeks, I'm putting another one up there in a couple weeks. So please uh, go there for that too. And uh, friends, just know that um, no matter what, that you are loved, you are loved by God. And may that knowledge and that peace be so deep in the core of who you are. And may it give you comfort may give you strength.